Okay, so what I'd like to do, brethren, to start the message is just ask you, how many of you currently are in a leadership role? Raise your hand if you're in a leadership role. Okay, I had about uh, maybe 10 people, 5 people. Let me ask it a little bit differently. How many people at some time in your life or in your circumstance would look to you for some sort of guidance? Is there ever a situation where someone might look to you for some guidance? How about some help? I mean, I happen to have a little bit of leadership responsibility in my job, and I think sometimes that's what we think about our careers. How old do you have to be to be in a leadership role? Can you be in fourth grade and be in a leadership role? How is that possible? So what is leadership? Well, I heard the most simple definition of leadership is a leader is someone who has followers. If you ever wonder if you're in a leadership role, all you have to do is see, is there anybody that's relying on you or following you? How many of us have followers? Even one Come on. The definition I like to think of when I think of leadership is a leader inspires and helps others to do something that they would not do on their own. Can a fourth grader inspire and help one of his friends to do something that he or she wouldn't do on their own? Of course. Can a grandma who's 95 years old inspire and help someone to do something that they wouldn't do on their own? Of course. Of course. How many of you are part of a family? Can you help or inspire a family member at some point in their life? Sure. How many of you are leaders in your families, moms or dads? How many of you are an aunt or an uncle? Let me ask it again. How many of you are in a leadership role? Every hand should go up. Let me ask it in a little bit different way. What is the fundamental mission of every Christian? We, t- we just had the Feast of Tabernacles a while ago. What's going to happen? What are we going to become? What is every human being aspiring to become? Whether they know it or not. Kings and priests. Leaders. And our leaders, our kings and priests, are going to have a responsibility to inspire others and help others to do more and be more than they could on their own? Yes. Christianity, brethren, is all about leadership. That's the fundamental aspect of Christianity. God is trying to make us all into good leaders. So I want to talk a little bit more about leadership today. Along this topic, I'm, I've been reading this book. I'm about halfway through it. 
What I like about this book, before I tell you what it is, is unlike other books, the circumstances of the authors here have to learn leadership or there's dire consequences. What do I mean by that? So there's a lot of books that people write about leadership, management books. In business, if you don't achieve your goal, what happens? You don't make money. You don't hit your financial goals. Let me ask you a question. In war, in a war, if you don't accomplish your goal, what happens? People die. People die. Are we in a war? How serious is spiritual death versus physical death? We think about physical war. Oh, that's terrible if someone dies in a physical war. But brethren, God says don't worry about the first death. Worry about the second death because the first death is temporary. The second death, that's it. Done. It's over. Permanent. That's serious. But we can learn a lot from the physical, from this life, of course. That's what we're here for, to learn in this life. And there's a book called Extreme Ownership that I'm reading. Okay? Extreme Ownership. Who wrote this book? Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. These are two guys that are officers in the Navy SEALs. Two officers in the Navy SEALs. They went and got some experience in Ramadi, what's known as the most hostile, dangerous urban warfare ever. Ramadi, Iraq. They made serious mistakes there. Made some serious mistakes, and guess what? People died. The consequences of poor leadership there are death. And they took those lessons... They took them back to SEALs training. They implemented, and their principles are actually the basis of the modern, current training for Navy SEALs. Now, who are the Navy SEALs? Sea, air, and land. It kind of pains me as a Marine to have to say this. But I have to give credit where credit's due. The Navy SEALs are an elite, if not the most elite fighting force on the planet. Think of the training. Can they be effective without superior leadership? No. Their training is the toughest around. Most people don't make it through. But it's not just physical. They put so much emphasis on developing leadership throughout the entire team from top to bottom, that it's the leadership that everybody instills that makes them high-performing elite teams. Do you think Jesus wants his people to be even better than the Navy SEALs in terms of leadership? I mean, come on. It's only Jesus Christ, God, the creator of the universe, what standards is he going to hold us to? If the Navy SEALs can get this good without God, how 
good should we be with God? Brethren, we have an obligation to learn how to become leaders. Not just leaders, but exceptional, outstanding leaders. That's the point of this life. Every single experience we go through, whether we're moms or dads or children, aunts and uncles, every trial, every experience, everything we do should be the purpose of helping us to mold and shape ourselves with God's help to become better leaders. So I want to go through a little bit of this. Of course, I talked about this book. Now, they went through some real difficult times, some blood, sweat, and tears to learn these leadership principles. But I have some news for Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. They could have also looked at the ultimate leadership book ever written. the ultimate leadership book ever written, because every principle that they developed and honed in on is exemplified in the pages of your Bible. And I want to take us through some of those principles and show you in the Bible what really can help us to have a foundation of leadership. Now, I'm not going to go through everything, but the, the basis. The title of this message is Foundations of Leadership. And it's the foundation. The foundation is the... Is the the thing that's holding up the house. There's a lot of aspects of leadership, but there's four key principles that are the foundations of leadership that we need to master and embrace if we're going to be good leaders. So I want to go ahead and take some time to go through that. So the first aspect is actually the title of the book, Extreme Ownership. What does that mean? Well, I'll share some examples of things that I'm starting to realize that become really bothersome for me. Have, you ever, have any of you ever heard of the, a psychology called um, internally motivated versus externally motivated? Well, there's a, a psychiatrist I heard one time, and he was saying that one of the, the secrets to success, to be a, a really good, fully functioning person is to be internally motivated, not externally motivated. What does that mean? Okay. So, let's say in Cleveland, I know this is rare, but in Cleveland, the weather might not be so good. It gets dreary. It gets dark. You might not see the sun for two or three weeks. So I meet you. Let's see, how, how you doing? <sighs> This weather really stinks. Oh, I hate it. I hate this weather. I wish I lived in Florida or something. Okay. Can you do anything about the weather? Yeah. Does the weather care how you feel about it? Okay, that's an externally, externally motivated person. Something external happens that that person had no control over and that the person's affected by it. An internally motivated person, brethren, doesn't care what the weather is. They have the power within themselves to choose to be happy regardless of the weather. That's an internally motivated person. 
And the psychiatrist, I don't remember his name, but his basic thing was, he gave all these examples, but basically it was that self-empowerment to realize that you have power within you to choose your life. See, a good leader, brethren, according to this book, takes ownership of their life. Takes extreme ownership of their life. In other words, there's nothing that happens to you that is a cause of anything outside of you. Okay. I went to the dentist a couple weeks ago. I've got to get some dental work done. And he asked me, did you ever smoke? Yeah, I did a long time ago when I was in the military. About 25 years ago. He goes, oh, that's going to be a problem. What? Oh, yeah, it has an effect. How long did you smoke for? Just a couple years. Oh, yeah, it's, there's, I, can, I can see it. It had, it had an impact. What else did you do? I used to chew tobacco. I did. I admit it. I quit. Oh, yeah, I can see. See, what happened is that starts to kind of a chain reaction, and, and it's, it, it leads to more things that build on each other, and I can see you're, you're going you're to need some problems. That's probably what the cause of your problems are. It traces back to 25 years ago. Really. You mean it wasn't just genetics? It just randomly happened to me and I could do nothing about it? Ultimately, brethren, it comes back to me. The fingers point back at me. I wish I wouldn't have chewed tobacco because if I didn't, maybe I wouldn't have to go through this dental procedure I got to go through. Everything, brethren, in our life. Extreme ownership, the principle of extreme ownership is we take responsibility for everything in our life, period. And I'll talk a little bit about why that's important in a second. A leader not only takes responsibility for his or her own life, but a leader takes responsibility for their entire team. No matter who was at fault. If a good quarterback loses a football game because the receiver dropped the ball, the quarterback takes responsibility. Maybe the quarterback could have threw it a different place. They don't blame. If something bad happens in your life and you start blaming this and blaming that, you are not taking extreme ownership. So, blaming others, brethren, really is a way of taking power out of yourself. Blaming others is acknowledging that that other thing has power over your life. Taking ownership is acknowledging that you have the power to take responsibility for it, but also, the most important thing, it allows you to realize you can change. You have to change. So let's look at some of these principles in the Bible. Brethren, I want to start over here. Let me just make a couple references here. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Because this principle of ownership, brethren, is something that God actually has given to us. Deuteronomy chapter 30. God basically says, brethren, that he's going to hold every one of us personally accountable for our lives. 
See, the one thing that God gave us, and this is what's brilliant about our Constitution, we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Liberty. What is liberty? It's freedom to choose. Look over here in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. See, this is God talking to us. See, I have set before you this day life and good, and death and evil, in that I command you this day to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. So his commandments, his ways, his judgments have practical benefit, produces life and providence, prosperity. And the Lord your God will bless you, in the land where you go to possess it. But if your heart turn away so that you will not hear, but be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish and that you shall not prolong the days upon your land whether you pass over Jordan to go and possess it. I call, again, I've read this before, but this always gets me, brethren. God is calling witnesses as if illegal, an illegal binding environment, like he's a, you're in front of a judge before a courtroom. It says, I call heaven and earth, all the angels, everything, I call this day as a witness, basically, against you that I have done this thing. I've put a choice before you. I have set this before you, life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your seed may live. There is no power that anything external to you has over that decision, brethren. It's right here in your Bible. God did not say, I've put you in a circumstance where you will not have control over your life. He said, I gave you a choice, life and death. You have the power to choose. We have a power to choose every single moment of the day, brethren. And whether we choose well or we don't choose well, there's only one person we can point to. We have to own it. We have to own that decision. The other aspect of this extreme ownership, brethren, as a leader, is owning our mission. What does that mean? Owning the mission. Putting the mission above our own personal desires. Think about that. Do we have a mission as Christians? as Christian leaders? Sure. Matthew, God told us, Jesus told us, go and share this gospel, share this good news with the world and make them disciples. Teach them. That's a mission. Be leaders. How important is that mission versus your own personal desires? A good leader a leader that takes extreme ownership takes extreme ownership of the successful accomplishment of the whole, whole team's mission. After a sporting event, when a team loses, you ever see a coach get up there and start blaming the players? Doesn't that feel wrong in your gut? Did the Pittsburgh Steelers coach ever blame the players when there was a mistake? No. I say that because Jim's here. I know he's a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I respect them. They're a good team. 
Another thing that kills me to have to say as a Browns fan. But we know it. When a coach gets up there after a team loses, ah, I'll tell you, I can't believe so-and-so dropped the ball. He's terrible. Doesn't happen. If that happens, that's not a good coach. A good coach realizes that he didn't train that player well enough. Oh, yeah. I didn't call the right plays. I didn't train him well enough. Team's not as disciplined. I got to work on that. Ultimately, a good coach realizes that it all boils down to one person and one person alone, the leader of the team. Takes full responsibility for the whole mission. Makes the mission more important than their personal desires. Mission first. Why is this important? Because when you put the mission above everything else, it helps you to be honest about the assessment of how you're doing. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, we're told, examine yourselves, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Prove it. Know you not, or know you not to your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobates? It keeps you honest, brethren. It helps you to make an honest assessment. When you put the mission first, you don't have time to blame others. You don't have time to say that you did everything perfectly and it's somebody else's fault. If the mission is more important than you, you'll say, that didn't work. I have to take a step back, evaluate, and do something different. Mission first. Extreme ownership starts with owning the entire mission and every person in the team. Now, if you're a dad and your kids get in trouble, extreme ownership would start with, no, I'm not going to blame my kid. After all, he's just a kid. Maybe I didn't teach him well enough. i got to take a step back, evaluate myself, my approach, and figure out what I can do differently to maybe better influence and lead my child. As a Christian, same thing. I want to read from the book here, Extreme Ownership Principle. The leader must own everything in his or her own world. There is no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. Do you think Jesus had extreme ownership? Think about that. What is Jesus' mission? For all of us to be born in his family. On the cross, Jesus, while he was dying, probably one of his last sentences, maybe it was, his, it was probably his second last sentence before he died. What did he say? Anybody remember that? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't blame us, even though we were deserving of it. What did he do? He took it on himself. Extreme ownership. To the point where he took on the penalty. He was brutally beaten and died so that the mission would be accomplished. Do you think Jesus put the mission before his own personal comfort, his personal desires? He prayed in John, Father, if there is any other way, let it be. But if there isn't, so be it. The mission's first. Mission's first. And everything that I have and I want is subjugated to the mission. That is a leader 
that takes extreme ownership, brethren. And Jesus took extreme ownership of his creation. That's the true essence and foundation of leadership. The second point, brethren, the second aspect or pillar of leadership is to continuously strive for perfection. The book says that there's nothing... How does he say it? He says there's no such thing as a bad team. Is there anything? Is there any such thing as a bad team? How many of you know a bad team? My dad raises his hand. <laughs> Let me finish the sentence. There's no such thing as a bad team, only a bad leader. There's no such thing as a bad team, only a bad leader. The book goes through an example of a team during Navy SEAL training that in a certain competition wasn't doing well and the leader was kind of like blaming all the team members. And then they did an experiment. They kept the team the same and they switched leaders. They took the leader of the team that kept winning and put him in charge of the, the last place team and they put the guy that was in charge of the last place team in charge of the best team. You know what happened? Well, the best team continued to perform well, believe it or not. But the last place team, within two tries, overtook the first place team. That extreme leadership of that, of that first team member, that first leader, had an impact on the first team. It stuck, and then he was able to change the, the performance of the other team. There's no such thing as a bad team, only bad leaders. How does this happen? The book says that a good leader will not tolerate poor performance. Strive for perfection. Does God tolerate poor performance? Turn with me to James chapter 1, verse 4. Actually, I'm going to read James. Go to Hebrews. I'm just going to read James. James chapter 1, it says, But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. God wants us to strive for perfection, brethren. Look over here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. I'll give you a second to turn there. Hebrews chapter 13. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting com co covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. It's God's will that he molds, shapes us, works us. He's inspiring us and leading us to be perfect, brethren. Perfect. He wants to make us perfect in every good work to do his will. Read that again. Why does he want us to be perfect? So that we can do his will. We have a job to do. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom the glory forever and ever. Amen. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 
All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Here Paul's sharing some, trying to teach Timothy. He says, why? That the man of God may be perfect. May be perfect. Thoroughly furnished unto good works. Brethren, I can go through many more scriptures about this, but God wants us to be perfect as he is. He wants us to strive for perfection. A good leader does the same. According to what Jacko Willink and Leif Babin have learned, is that a fundamental aspect of, a, of good leadership is that a leader holds their team to high standards, but be first, they hold themselves to a high standard. You have to lead by example. They hold themselves and their team to high standards. Let's go and take a look at some scriptures about what God expects in terms of how we should conduct ourselves, the type of standards that we should have in our lives. Romans chapter 12. Let's go over there. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Pillar number two, brethren, strive for perfection in everything that we do. And don't tolerate imperfection from our team. Don't be complacent. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor or hate, hate that which is evil. Don't let it creep in. Cleave to that which is good. Cleave is join, join, hang on with dear life to that which is good. In that sentence, brethren, I don't see toleration of evil. I see strength and passion cleaving to what what is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, honoring, preferring one another. As we read this, think about your life and if you are allowing your life to miss the marks, what type of standard are you holding for yourself? Not slothful in business. Do we have times where we want to be lazy, not do hard work, not do our homework as kids, not work hard at our careers or at whatever we're doing? being a good mom or dad, whatever it is. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit. Fervent. Don't read over these words. Fervent. That's energy. That's passion. Passion in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing instant in prayer. Distributing to the necessity of the saints. Being hospitable. Can we be more hospitable? Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. How are we doing on that one? Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Brethren, we're being called to be kings and priests in the kingdom. God expects us to be good leaders, exceptional leaders. He wants these talents and traits and personality characteristics in us. 
Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estates. In other words, don't play favorites. Treat everybody the same. Be fair. Be not wise in your own conceits. Don't think of yourself more than you should. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Even if someone does evil to you, God wants a leader to do what Jesus did. Put the mission first. Don't give it back to him. Be kind. Be loving. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it possible, as much as lies in you, brethren, live peaceably with everybody. Avenge not yourselves. Give place to wrath. Don't get anger. Don't get angry. Vengeance is God's, not ours. If your enemy hungers, give him food, feed him, treat him well. If he thirsts, give him drink, for in so doing, you heap coals of fire on his head. I think this means that you're going to perhaps have an impact on that person and motivate them to realize that even though they did you evil, you did kind and good to them. Maybe it helps to change them. That's leadership. That's leadership. Don't be overcome of evil. Overcome evil with good. Brethren, the second principle of foundational leadership, of excellent leadership, is to set high standards for yourself and set high standards for your team. Do not tolerate poor performance, period. It's so easy in this life. We get so distracted and so busy. I find myself going weeks or two and you realize, boy, i got to get back into this. How am I going to be a good leader if I'm not doing it myself? How am I going to be a good dad and tell my kids not to give up if I give up? See what I'm saying? That's a foundation, brethren. Did Jesus do this? Did Jesus set high standards for himself when he was here? Think about that. Did Jesus say, I'm going to get 90% righteous. I'm going to live myself, you know, but I'm going to give myself a little bit of freedom to maybe I'll be lazy here and there, or I'll do something. What would have happened if Jesus did that? Mission would not got, have gotten accomplished. Did Jesus set high standards for himself? He came down, put himself at risk. He made himself frail, flesh and blood, and lived this life with Satan, the devil, pounding on him as much as he could to try to get him to trip him up. And yet Jesus proved. He set the example, brethren. That's what so I love about Jesus. You want to talk about the epitome of a leader? He did not ask us to do anything he didn't already do himself. He came down and he showed us how it's done. He lived a perfect, righteous, loving life. And then afterwards, he sacrificed his life for us. What leadership, brethren? That is setting a high standard. And then he tells us, keep the commandments and be perfect as he is perfect. 
The third point, brethren, principle and foundational to leadership. What do you think it is? Anyone want to take a guess? Before you can lead, before you can do anything, you have to have one ingredient, one thing. Knowledge. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. The third principle of this leadership that, were found, that was found in this book, Extreme Ownership, and I believe is certainly a principle of leadership as revealed in the Bible. You can get some insight here. Hebrews chapter 11. We'll start in verse 6. But without faith, brethren, without faith, without belief, without a fundamental conviction of knowing why you're doing something, without faith, it is not likely. No. It is impossible. It is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe. Brethren, the second or the third principle of leadership is you have to believe in the mission. If you don't believe in the mission, how are you going to convince anybody else to believe in the mission? How sincerely and strongly do you believe in the mission that God gave you? Jesus says, first, seek the kingdom of heaven. Seek it first. Make it a priority and everything else will be added to you. Without faith, it's impossible to please him for he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Belief was very important to Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, you can read about how he healed the blind man. What he said in 928... The blind man said, came to him and said unto him, they cried and saying, the son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus said, believe you that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I can heal you? And he said, yea, Lord. And Jesus said, according to your faith, be it unto you. And he was healed. Belief is critical, brethren. Jesus wants to see that we have faith and belief in the mission that he gave us. And it's a fundamental principle Fundamental principle of leadership. If you have questions, if you have, maybe your belief isn't as strong as it should be, brethren, you've got to prove it. If you're going to be a good leader in God's kingdom, you have to be on fire for the, for the mission. You have to know why. I gave a sermon a while back called Start With Why. If you want to inspire someone to do something that they wouldn't do, you have to start with why. What's in it for them? How often do we, almost as a matter of spite, oh, I don't keep those pagan traditions. Why don't you keep Christian? Because it's pagan. Does that tell anybody why they shouldn't keep it? Why should anybody want to get closer to God? 
Oh, I can think of a lot of good reasons for that. Happier lives, better marriages, health, confidence to know that everything will work out for the good no matter what happens. Start with why, brethren. A good leader explains not only to himself and has conviction of why they're doing it, why this mission is important, but can explain it and inspire others to understand why it's important as well. When your team knows why they're doing something, that's easier to inspire them to actually go to new heights. Turn me to James chapter 2, brethren. Understanding why... Having belief in the mission motivates people toward action. James chapter 2, verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. God wants action, brethren. He wants action. Not just from us, but all those that we are leading. From our congregation, from our families. He wants to see results. It's not just about knowing. It's not just about being able to recite the entire doctrine. Jesus wants real results. James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Can faith save him? Just believing? No. Action. Faith motivates action, brethren. If a brother or sister be naked or destitute of daily food... Someone's in need and you say, I'm just going to pray for you, but you have power to actually help them? That's kind of like putting the responsibility on someone else instead of taking responsibility, isn't it? Extreme ownership for the mission means you need food, I'm going to give you some food. I'll pray that God helps you so you don't have to have need in need anymore, but right now I'm going, to, I'm going to give you food, I'm going to help you. That's what James is saying. If a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace and be ye warmed and filled, I'll pray for you. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needed to be the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead. Yea, a man may say, You have faith. James says, I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, evidence, brethren, that you and your team have faith and belief in the mission is you see progress. You see works. You see the results. If you're not seeing results in your life and you're not seeing results in the lives of people around you, time to take a step back, reevaluate, figure out what you need to do differently. What is God's why? I said start with why. Why is God doing all of this? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis chapter 1. I did a, a, a sermon a while back about the greatest scripture in the Bible. I believe, brethren, that this is the greatest scripture in the Bible. Now, we could have, I'll go back to that if I'd love to go into a debate another time. But I'm just going to go ahead and read it. I'll let you ponder that one if you haven't heard the sermon. Maybe try to prove me wrong. 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God said, let us make man in our image. This is God's mission. Why did God create the universe, brethren? So that he could have children. That's the mission. That's why we're here. We're not here to become chemical engineers or nurses or to win the Super Bowl. We're here that every human being will develop the character and love and personality and leadership to be born into God's very own family as powerful spiritual beings. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is God's why. This is the mission. This is what he believes. You think God believes in this mission, brethren? Romans chapter 8, verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. In other words, the entire creation, the whole universe exists and is waiting for one thing. The manifestation of the sons of God. It's waiting for all of us to be transformed and born into God's family. That's the singular purpose of God. That's his mission. For the creature was made subject to vanity. This creation is made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him that has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of this physical frail state, this world, from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for this one singular thing, the adoption the redemption of our body. That's God's mission. That's his why. Do you believe in it? If you don't believe in that mission, brethren, you need to go back and do more Bible study and prayer and get on fire for that mission because you can't inspire others to believe in that mission until you do. And then as a good leader, make it a part of your daily work through your own example, to inspire others to come to that knowledge as well, to have them embrace the same mission so that they could aspire to become the children of God more than they could ever be in this physical life. We can read in Revelation chapter 3 that God wants us to be on fire for that mission, brethren. In the book, Extreme Ownership, it says, in order to convince and inspire others to follow and accomplish a mission, a leader must be a true believer. Interesting that a bunch of guys from the Navy SEALs 
are saying that a leader must be a true believer. A true believer in the mission. Leaders must always operate with the understanding that they are part of something greater than themselves. Do you know that you're part of something greater than yourself, brethren? If we're in the church, in the CGI, in God's, God's church, or any of the, the churches of God, we are part of a special elite force. The Navy SEALs are nothing next to God's people. Leaders must understand and operate under the assumption that they are part of something greater than themselves and their own personal interests. Far more important than training or equipment, a resolute belief in the mission is critical for any team or organization to win big results. Third pillar, brethren, is we have to believe. Why do you think Jesus put his life, I mean, put the mission his mission before his own life. Because he believes in the mission. What's motivating him? John chapter 15, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, because he loves us. Love, brethren, is what's motivating Christ. That's his why. Brethren, the fourth principle, fourth principle Check your ego. That little yawn just checked my ego. <laughs> From Jason over there. Brethren, we have to, a good leader checks his ego. If something happens in your unit and you start blaming everybody else, what are you doing? You're saying, I was perfect. Couldn't be me. I'm doing everything right. In fact, sometimes coming Passover and I'm supposed to look at myself, I say, boy, I can't find any sin. Anyone ever say that? I hope not. If those thoughts are there, if you can't see the problems you have in your life, your own sins, then you have to take a step back and look at your ego. As a leader, brethren, we have to be humble. We have to realize that we're not perfect. We're not there yet. We're in a process. We're all developing. The nice thing about not having such a big ego is that it kind of relieves some stress. We realize that we're going to make mistakes. We're not perfect. But we don't dwell on the mistake. We don't sit there and blame everybody for it. We accept it. We made a mistake. And you get busy figuring out what you can do differently to improve it. Ego gets in the way of learning. Ego gets in the way of learning, brethren. Jesus told us we should become like little children. What does that mean? Little children realize that they're little children. That adults know more than them. They're humble. They look up at mom and dad. They think mom and dad know everything, and they do. Let me just tell you over there. I pointed to my children for those on the camera. 
Brethren, we have to have an open mind, realize that we don't know it all. Even if we've been in the church for 40 years, we've got to remember, we don't know it all. Paul says we see through a glass darkly. A 40-year-old veteran in the church can learn something from someone who's just coming to the church. Yes. Because God is inspiring that person and is in that person. If we start getting to the point where we think we know it all, brethren, and something happens and we're not taking responsibility, it's a sign, brethren, that maybe we have to take a look at our ego. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. But we are all as unclean, and all our righteousness, as good as we think we are, is as a filthy rag to God. Let's keep ourselves in check here. No matter how good we are, compared to God, brethren. Now, that doesn't give us a pass to say we shouldn't continue to strive for perfection. We already went through that. But we have to realize it's a process. It's a journey. And we personally have to continually improve and continually challenge ourselves to get better. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners. Verse 19 of Romans. Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 23.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Brethren, we need to realize that we have a lot to learn. Just that alone will help us be better leaders. When our teams or we fail, it allow us to take a step back, reevaluate. In the Marines, we had an ex- expression, improvise, adapt, and overcome. The mission was so important that when something didn't go right, instead of sitting there and blaming everybody or stewing in the fact that, you know, woe is me, it didn't work, you don't have time for that. You improvise. You adapt and you overcome. You keep going. You learn. You try new things. Do things differently. If we have a habit that we're trying to kick and we can't seem to kick it, improvise, adapt, and overcome. Try a new approach. Don't ever quit. That's something that a good leader does. Check your ego. Brethren, just last thing here. I don't want to go, I'm not going to go through all the scriptures, but to remind us that as Christians, we have a secret weapon that Navy, that Navy SEALs don't have. Maybe some of them have it. I'm not, it's not for me to know who God's working with who he's inspiring, but I know one thing. If you're in God's church and he's opened up your mind and you've been baptized and had hands laid on you, you have a secret weapon. You have the spirit of the ultimate leader living inside of you, giving you power. It's the Holy Spirit, brethren. God's Holy Spirit. There is no leader like Jesus Christ. He sets the standard. We can read in Romans chapter 8 that God has given us his spirit and it's a spirit of power. It's a spirit of power. Brethren, the basics of Christian leadership, of any leadership, is first and foremost, own the mission. Take ownership. Take, Take ownership of your own lives. Don't blame others. 
own it. Take ownership of your team's success, your family's success. Whoever you say is your team, our congregation here is a team. If our congregation's not growing, every one of us should take personal responsibility for that. If we're leaders. And we said we all are. First, own the mission. Own our lives. Own every aspect about it. Secondly, strive for perfection. Don't tolerate anything less. Sure, we'll make mistakes, but then get up on your feet and keep striving for perfection. That's the second principle. Third, believe. You have to have a fundamental, strong belief in the mission. You have to know why you're doing this and believe in it. If you do, that will inspire others to believe as well. And third, fourth, brethren, lose the ego. Keep your ego in check. Realize that we're nothing without God. God gave us life. It's he who gives us life. He who teaches us what real love and righteousness is. And we're going to make mistakes Don't let our ego get in the way of us continuously making improvement and learning, no matter how old or how young we are. Those four principles, brethren, are the foundations of true leadership. Jesus Christ exemplified them, and he expects us to master those four basic principles so that we can be effective kings and priests in his kingdom. That king and priesthood isn't just some prize that allows us to sit there and, and just enjoy and play the harp and now we, we have this wonderful life for the rest of our existence. No. It's a calling to work. He's going to put us to work, brethren. He expects us to have the talents and skills and leadership traits to do it effectively. Otherwise, I dare say, he'll get someone else to do it. Jesus is the ultimate leader, brethren. He's training us to be leaders like him. It's our mission. He wants us to be righteous and effective kings and priests in his kingdom, helping to bring peace and prosperity to the world, to all of his children. Let's take extreme ownership of our calling, brethren. And with God's help, we'll continually grow and develop into those righteous and effective leaders that God wants us to be.